0: He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together. Go to the the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on us this morning. Our Father, we are so thankful for your goodness to us and your grace for us as a congregation, the way you have supplied our needs during this uh, time of this uh, COVID pandemic and the quarantine and all of this social distancing and everything. Father, we're thankful that no one in our congregation has uh, been ill or has lost their life during this time. We're thankful for the opportunities. Many of us have had to talk about your grace and your goodness and why there is evil in the world and why there is disease and sickness. Father, we pray that you would continue to give us those opportunities, especially in light of many of the horrible things that are transpiring right now. We live in difficult times. We live in times that are unprecedented in some ways, but yet the truth of your word never changes. You never change. The solutions to man's problems never change. Sin may manifest itself in different ways, but the solution is always the same. It is always your grace, it is always the cross, it is always the blood of Christ. As we read in Ephesians 2.13, that we are brought near by the blood of Christ, his death on the cross for us. Now, Father, we pray that as we study your word today, that you would help us to come to a greater understanding of the transformative power of your grace and your goodness. It is undeserved, it is unmerited, and it is an expression of your great love for us. And we thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. We continue from last week this morning talking about the deficit of the Gentiles. I have titled this morning message Gentiles once far, now near. The far is part of what we will continue to study in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, from last time, and the being brought near is the contrast that is presented in verse 13. So, first, let's read the context of our passage this morning. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ." Now, these three verses are an introduction to this section that goes down, extends down to the end of chapter 2 and verse 22. In fact, when we come to verse 13, we will see that it is the transition statement that is basically introducing the next section. For in that short verse, it says that Christ, through Christ, we have who have been far off, have been brought near. How did that happen? That's the topic of verses 14 through 18, which we'll get to next time. But as we look at the structure here in verse 11 and 12, as I showed you last time, there is a, a, a brief pause, a, a the, the insertion of a parenthetical explanation in the middle of verse 11 so that the primary thought is stopped. And this secondary idea is brought in, and then the primary thought resumes in verse 12. So that Paul is saying, therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, now he needs to explain what he means by Gentiles in the flesh, that is, in their human physical body, they're Gentiles. There's something distinctive about them in the flesh, that is, in their physical body, and that's what he explains in the... A parenthetical clause set off by the m dashes who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh, and we studied that that as Gentiles they were uncircumcision uncircumcised, and that circumcision was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, and the Gentiles were by this time in the first century as a result of the arrogant haughtiness and the elitism of the Pharisees that was wrong and was not part of the original idea, they were critical of the Gentiles and they ridiculed them and derided them and called them names and the way they would refer to them is they are uncircumcised. You know, they're just not as good as we are because we are circumcised and they were taking the privileges that God had provided for them as Jews as a sign of superiority, when in fact, as we will see going through this, that it was just the opposite. It had nothing to do with the innate superiority or the innate righteousness of the, of the Jews, but because of God's grace. It had nothing at all to do with who the Jews were. They had nothing of value to bring to God any more than any other, other human being. And so we studied this. They thought by this time in, in uh, Jewish history, the Pharisees taught that you actually, it was the blood that was shed in circumcision that had a redemptive value, a spiritual value, and that by circumcision and this rite that was, they were using the Mosaic law because it was still specified in the Mosaic law that this is what would save you and save the Jews. And then Paul comes back and he reminds them of their basic deficits in verse 12. Verse 1 should be read, leaving out most of what's in in the parenthetical phrase. Remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh were without Christ. And then we go on with the other four deficits mentioned in verse 12 that at that time you were without Christ. So we see this list broken out here on this slide. First of all, they were without Christ. Second, he says they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Third, he says they're strangers from the covenants of promise. Fourth, they have no hope. Fifth, they are without God in the world. Each of these phrases needs to be understood, and there's a lot packed into them. He began, as we saw last time, by saying that at that time. Now, we have to understand this because you will find that a number of people will think at that time means at that time before they were saved. But the context here is talking not about their individual salvation and justification. It is talking about God's plan for them as Gentiles at that time that is before the cross during the time, the the age of the Jews. And so this word kairos, translated time, it is at that time. This is the time period that extends from the call of Avram in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, to the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. And so to remind us of the ages, not the dispensations. Dispensations are... Uh, shorter periods of time within the broad ages we have eternity past and from creation to the call of abraham we have the age of the gentiles everybody's a gentile then there is a distinction made god came along and he selected the jewish people the descendants of abraham isaac and jacob for five privileges which uh I reviewed some last time, but they had these, uh, are, are these related to this list of what the Gentiles were without, that these Gentiles lacked these five privileges, but the Jews had taken these five privileges as a sign of their superiority. And during the age of Israel, Israel goes through this this time of disobedience in the period of the judges, obedience under David, a lot of obedience under Solomon, but then they begin to apostatize and go into idolatry. Then the nation splits. The northern kingdom is in idolatry the whole time. Nothing good is said of any of their kings. In the southern kingdom, there's only about four or five kings about whom anything good is said. The nation is in disobedience and rebellion, although there are many believers Who were not, but as a whole, the nation was, did not walk with God. And so finally God, uh, brought about his promise in the cycles, five cycles of discipline, uh, Leviticus chapter 26. And eventually he took them out of the land. The northern kingdom went out in 722, the southern kingdom in 586. He brought them back in 538 B.C. The reason for that, one of the primary reasons, so there would be a nation present when the Messiah came. And so you have this return known as the post-exilic period. And in that time, you develop a legalism within Judaism, hoping to, uh, hoping to placate God's wrath so that this thing of an exile would never happen again. But when Christ came, they rejected him, preferring their legalism to the grace of God's Messiah. So that God again took them out under discipline, and the Jewish people as the people of God were temporarily set aside for a new people of God, and that is the church And we move from the age of Israel to the age of the church. So when Paul is talking about at that time, he is talking about the age of Israel, not the age of the Gentiles, but he's talking about during the age of Israel, the Jews took on this act of superiority, thinking they were spiritually better because they had the promises given to Abraham. In the future, Christ will return and then we will have the Messianic age. Of course, we know that the tribulation precedes the coming of the Messianic age, but this is a broad picture of the ages, not the dispensations. So at that time, you were, the verb here indicates uh, it's in the imperfect tense, so it's talking about uh, a continual action in past time. So it's talking about the Gentiles as a group, as a class of people, not as individuals, for there were many Gentiles in the Old Testament that were believers in the messianic hope of Israel. We can think of a couple of women who are in the line of Christ. We can think of Rahab the harlot, and we think of Ruth the Moabitess, who were Gentiles but who proselytized as they married Jews and entered into the commonwealth of of Israel. But there were others like Naaman the Syrian, and I believe that very possibly Nebuchadnezzar, the uh, king of Babylon, and others did nev- never pro- became proselytes. they were Gentiles who were saved, but they never entered into the Commonwealth of Israel and there were many others who were saved during that uh, during that time so this is focusing on that that time period that they were first of all without Christ, as we saw last time that this should be taken, not that they' were not saved they didn't have jesus but they were without messiah as a class of people we have to remember paul is talking about this class of people as a class of people they were uh they did not have a messianic hope they did not have a messianic promise they were not they didn't have these this revelation from god and in romans paul talks about certain privileges that the jews had i went through these last time i'm going to zip through them real fast this time And not take a lot of time, but first of all, God granted to the Jews the privileges of being the custodians of the Scripture. The Scripture was revealed by God through Jewish prophets, through Jewish writers, through Moses, through Joshua, through Samuel, uh, through the other prophets who wrote and copied and transmitted the Scripture down through the ages. The Scriptures came to the Jewish people. Second, Jews were granted privilege of priority in the apostolic age. Uh, Paul took the gospel to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Romans 1.16. Then the third privilege that we see in Romans is that Jews had the adoption. This is from Romans chapter nine verse four. Very important background for our understanding here in Ephesians two. Jews had the adoption, the glory the covenants, the promises, the law. They served God in his tabernacle and temple, and they were to be, as a nation, a kingdom of priests. That's in Romans chapter 9, verse 4. And then fourth, the Jews were granted to provide the line of the humanity of Jesus. God had first indicated a Promised deliverer in Genesis three fifteen that he identified as the seed of the woman who would come to defeat and destroy the seed of the serpent, and so you have to trace the seed. That's why those genealogies are there, so that you can trace the seed in Genesis chapter five, Genesis chapter ten, Genesis eleven, and the line goes down, and we come to Abram of Ram in Genesis chapter twelve, and that is when God calls out. The Jewish people, and to them, he gives the covenants of promise, and that's the big theme that we have here uh, as a backdrop to understanding Ephesians 2:12. And so, this is what we're talking about: he, the the Gentiles as a class, had no messianic hope, no messianic promises; they did not have the messianic uh, scriptures. And second, we're told that they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, this is an important phrase. There are two key words that have to be understood here. What does it mean to be an alien? It doesn't mean that you're from some planet, that you're a Klingon, or you're from Vulcan, or some other planet, that you're a Wookiee or something from somebody's imagination out there in the universe. It means that you are excluded for something. That's the main idea. And you're excluded, it says here, from the commonwealth of Israel. You're separated. Now, we talked about this word last time. It's used a couple of other times in, in uh, the Scripture. Ephesians 4.18 talks about being alienated from the life of God. That's our definition of spiritual death, that we're alienated from the life of God. We're not dead like a corpse, as Reformed theology teaches we have a lot of things that we do, but we're alienated from the life of God, therefore we are spiritually dead. Colossians 122 use, or 121 uses it in a similar in a similar way. It says you who were once who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. So again it has to do with that that separation from God. But in this passage, it's separation or exclusion from the commonwealth of Israel. Now, this word being aliens is a participle, actually, and it is in the perfect tense. Now, what's important about all of this grammatically is simply understanding that the perfect tense says something. It tells us that there's an action that's completed in past time, but it's focus, focusing on the ongoing results. Of that completed action, the action in past time is the calling of Abraham, the calling of Avram in genesis 12, 1 through three to leave his home and to go where God is leading him because he's going to give him a a special piece of real estate, and God is going to provide a a nation through Avram. He will be the father of 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 the of the nation of Israel of the people. Of Israel, and so the perfect tense tells us that at that time the the Gentiles are excluded that 's your probably the best way to understand this word they 're excluded because this separation occurs of Abram and his descendants from the rest of the human race and what 's interesting here is that we must understand that god didn 't choose. Rom because he was inherently good or because God in his omniscience knew that his descendants were going to be wonderful people and they were going to be brilliant people and they were going to do many good and wonderful things and that somehow he picked them because they were inherently in some way better than every every everybody else. What we see here is that God calls them because they're not good at all. It's all God's grace. There's nothing. There's nothing valuable that God sees in the Jewish people. In Deuteronomy nine six and seven, Moses says, "Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people." That's the first compliment he has here. You're a stiff-necked people. He's saying you're you're stubborn. You're, and then the second thing he says is, "...do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness." So they're making God angry all the time by their uh, rebelliousness, by their stubborn stubborn rebellion, rebelliousness. And that's the third thing in the end of verse 7. "...do not forget how you provoke the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness." From the day that you departed from the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. So they've got three strikes against them. Number one, they're stubborn and they're stiff-necked. Number two, they anger God all the time by their disobedience. And third, they're rebellious. So with three strikes, they're out. There's nothing about the Jewish people that God saw and said, Aren't you wonderful? I'm going to make you my special people. They were not that way at all. But see, what has happened here is because God chose the Jewish people that this angered the Gentiles. Why do they get all these blessings? Why do they get all these privileges? And see, this is the root of anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism is really the Satan, Satan's great ploy to destroy God's plan. Satan rejected the choice of the Jewish people as he rejected God's plan from the very beginning of his fall in eternity past. And so did those who rejected God. They rejected God's plan. They said, why should you choose the Jews? And they became jealous and they became angry. And that is the root of anti-Semitism. It is a rejection and hostility to the plan of God to work out his plan to the people of Israel through the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Even though the scripture is clear that he wasn't showing any favoritism and he wasn't showing them uh, or choosing them because there was something inherently good about them. But he was going to set them apart as a special people through whom he was going to work. And so that helps us understand the next phrase, the commonwealth of Israel. The word here in the Greek is the word politeia, and it has the idea in some context of citizenship, of a civic life, of a person's role within uh, the political community of a city or a region or a nation. And so this was often the way it was uh, interpreted in, in uh, early literature, an early interpretation of the passage but what we find is that it has a better understanding if we really look at the context here, which we will do in just a minute, but it has to do more as a figurative uh, way of talking about the people of Israel, belonging to a group. And so that group is Israel, and that Israel is a community that God chose, that God gave certain privileges and blessings to, and certain covenants to, and that they are excluded from that community. Now, that's important because of the way it's used in the opposite sense in Ephesians 2.19. In Ephesians 2.19, we read, Now, therefore, you, that's talking to them, what were they? You were without these things. You were strangers of the covenants of promise. You were alien, alienated, aliens from or excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And then because of being in Christ, Paul says in verse nineteen, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So saints and members of the household of God, which is the church in this context that is used in contrast to being excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. So when we look at it that way, we see that what he's talking about is the inclusion or exclusion within a group of people. Now, some may come along. In fact, I heard a seminary student when I was in seminary trying to make an argument that that the last part of this indicated that we were all one people of God. We're all one household. But see... It looks that way if you stop at the end of verse 19. But fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. See, this guy was trying to make an argument that Jews are also members of the household, just one household. But the household of God is defined specifically when you look at verse 20. Verse 20 says, Having been built, the household of God having been built, past tense, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, those aren't Old Testament prophets. Those are New Testament prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. That didn't happen in the Old Testament. So you can't argue that Christ is the chief cornerstone of what was, of Israel in the Old Testament. And we'll see other things that are said in the coming verses that make it very clear that there is this strong distinction between the church and Israel. And that is fundamental to biblical interpretation that God has a plan for Israel, God has a plan for the church. They are the two separate peoples of God. God has set aside Israel for the time being because they rejected Jesus as Messiah. But he will restore them and return them to the land in the future. And he will fulfill all of his promises and all of the covenants to them literally as they were originally intended. And that helps us to understand what we're going to see in the next, in the third statement, that they are strangers from the covenants of promise. So Ephesians two twelve reads that at that time, this is in the age of the Gentiles, you were without Christ, no messianic hope, no knowledge of the Messiah. You were excluded, aliens. From the commonwealth of Israel, you were separated. God was working through Israel, through the Abrahamic covenant. You were not part of that Abrahamic covenant. You were not part of the group of Israel through whom God was working. And now third, strangers from the covenants of promise. The word translated strangers is the word xenos. We have it in an English word, xenophobia. That is the fear of foreigners, the fear of strangers, and often you hear people uh, on the left accuse those on the right who believe in national security and the establishment of secure borders, simply because that's what gives security to a nation. God is the one who established borders, according to Paul in Acts chapter 17. That is a biblical principle. But what we have is those who are within a nation are, are those in the nation part of the that national entity, and those who are not citizens of that country are referred to in the scriptures as strangers and uses this term xenos. And we don't go around calling the French racist, but uh, they their word for a foreigner is "étranger," which is stranger. So if you're not French, you're a stranger. That's not racist. That's just biblical truth applied originally. You have a nation, those that aren 't part of that nation are strangers. They are foreigners it's it 's not a bad word it 's not a racist term it 's not a horrible word. in fact, those who are using it and and accuse people of being racist because they use words like like aliens instead of this politically correct undocumented workers. they are aliens. they are strangers they are foreigners that 's not racist in fact, those who are calling. People who use those terms racist are indeed themselves racist in a very subtle, arrogant manner. And so we always have to protect against that. But political correctness is the virus, uh, is the ideological virus of our generation. So they are foreigners. They are strangers to the covenants of promise. God did not make a covenant with the Gentiles. So what do we mean by the covenants of of promise. Well, one thing we ought to recognize, one other thing we ought to recognize is with this use of the word stranger, it's ironic that when God speaks of Israel and taking them into the land in Leviticus twenty-five twenty-three, God says that when they go into the land, they will be strangers using a synonym for the word xenos in the, in the Greek translation, but that's what he is saying. And in fact, we see this, that even in the world, The Jewish people, because they were God's chosen people, are strangers in the world. They're strangers in the land that God gave them, and they were going to be strangers in the world according to... And we see an example of this, rather, in uh, Esther chapter 3, verse 13, as the Jewish people were the target of Haman's anti-Semitism. As God's choice people in the world... In the devil's world, they are constantly under satanic attack. Satan's policy towards Israel is always anti-Semitism. And anyone who's anti-Semitic, anyone who's anti-Zionist, anyone who is anti-Israel is playing into the hands of the devil's policy of anti-Semitism. Now, when I say anti-Israel, that doesn't mean that you have to agree with everything, every policy, every action of the Jewish government. That's not what that means. Because even Jews living in Israel, Israelis disagree with their policies. There's something like 20 different political parties in Israel. You know, there's an old Jewish proverb that when you have uh, three Jews, you have five opinions they argue about everything. But what it means is that those who are anti-Zionist and anti-Israel are those who believe that the land of Israel really should be given to the Arabs known as the, wrongly as the Palestinians. And they also are saying that Israel doesn't have a right to self-defense as a nation and a right to secure borders, which is essentially every position that comes down in every peace plan along the way. So we have to avoid anti-Semitism at all costs. So let's look at the covenants of promise. These are all covenants that God made with Israel. They started with promises that were made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We also have Genesis chapter 13, 14 through 18, Genesis chapter 15, 1 to 21, and Genesis 17, 1 to 21. Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17. So you can just write those chapters down and then read them for yourself. He made those promises, and those promises will not be fulfilled until the future. So that's our plan of the, of God's plan for the ages. Now here, the element I've just added to the slide gives us the timeline of history down at the bottom, starting with the formation of Israel, the calling forth of Abraham as the father of the Jewish people, later the formation of the nation at Mount Sinai when Moses becomes the father of the Jewish nation. So we see that the first covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. It is an unconditional covenant and eternal covenant that God gave to Abraham and promised him three things, as we'll see, land, specific piece of real estate, seed, that there would be uh, more descendants than the sand of the seashore and the stars in the sky, and blessing, that through him all nations, that is, all Gentiles, would be blessed. And, of course, that the seed promise and the blessing promise are ultimately focused and fulfilled in the Messiah, in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second covenant is the real estate covenant, the land covenant. God promised a specific piece of real estate to Israel, a piece of real estate that is bordered on the, on the west by the Mediterranean Sea, and it's bordered on the east by the Euphrates River. Now, there is a little chant, if you have ever go out to some of these demonstrations by the by the Arabs who are hostile and anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist and the enemy of God because of those positions, not because of their ethnicity or their religion, but their religion makes them an enemy of God as well. But they have a little chant, and that is that they want land from the river to the sea. That's what they're saying. Now, the river they're talking about is the Jordan, but you'll hear them chant this, from the river to the sea. What they mean by that is they want everything from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea. But God gave all of that and more to the Jewish people. He gave them everything from the Euphrates River to the sea and then down south to the uh, wadi of Egypt. And so this is clearly articulated in Genesis 12:7, where God said to Abraham, to your descendants I will give this land. And then in the later covenants, uh, the later statements of the covenant in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, he defines the borders according to what I I just said. The third covenant of promise is the Davidic covenant. This is not given until you get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, where God takes the seed provision of the Abrahamic covenant and says that this will be fulfilled through the line of David. It will culminate in a an individual who is jesus the messiah as a descendant of david <clears throat> so the passages there second samuel seven twelve to seventeen second samuel twenty three five psalm eighty nine three psalm eighty nine three and eighty nine twenty seven to thirty seven okay second samuel seven twelve to seventeen twenty three five psalm eighty nine three eighty nine twenty seven to thirty seven and Psalm 132, 11, and 12. The fourth covenant of promise, and the Davidic covenant is not ultimately fulfilled until Jesus returns to establish his kingdom at the beginning of the millennium. The third covenant is the new covenant. Now, dispensationalists have a lot of disagreements about how the church relates to the new covenant. There's about three three major positions. The pastor's group that I... Uh, have put together on Friday mornings took a year to study two important books on the new covenant that have been published one I think came out in 2009 the other in about 2014 and as a result of that study we learned more than we ever thought we that we needed to know about the Davidic I mean excuse me about the the new covenant and I had the writers of each one of those chapters come and present his chapter over three or four Friday mornings online to all the pastors. We have 25 to 30 pastors from around the world who, who joined that group, and we had lively conversations and debates, and we didn't all agree when we got through with the whole thing. But um, it, it was very clear to me that I needed to change my view a little bit. I had always held the view that the New Covenant was primarily and exclusively with Israel and the house of Israel and the house of Judah. That's the way it stayed in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, and also in Hebrews 8. And I said, by virtue of that covenant that will be fulfilled with the Jews, that certain application of those blessings come to the church. That's why I have a dotted line there, and I've used this chart for many years. But the reality is that the, when you really look at the blessings that are promised in the new covenant... They're they're similar to, but they're not the same as the blessings that we're experiencing in the church age today. There will be a universal indwelling of God the Holy Spirit in the Jewish people as a result of the new covenant in the millennial kingdom so that they don't need to be taught by anybody. Well, we have a universal indwelling of the Holy Spirit in every believer, but they need to be taught. That's why the Holy Spirit gives the gift to pastor-teacher. So similar doesn't mean the same, doesn't mean identical. And I think that's a mistake that is often made is because there are certain similarities with what happened on the day of Pentecost and what is going on in the church today. And I know there are passages that talk about Paul being the minister of the new covenant, well, because he's bringing Jews to Christ and believers to Christ, and we'll participate in that in the kingdom. So he's talking uh, proleptically, and there are other ways of looking at those, those verses. So what we have today is this. This is the new covenant is not for the church. The new covenant is for Israel. And we anticipate that in the Lord's table. That is why Jesus said, I will not drink of this cup until I come in my kingdom. So in the Passover meal that was established in Exodus, it looked forward to the coming of the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, but it's, it looked back to what had been accomplished in the redemption of the people and delivering them from slavery in Egypt. The Lord's table looks back to what Christ did on the cross as the sacrifice for the new covenant. But a sacrifice isn't necessary to have a covenant. What was the sacrifice for the Davidic covenant? Can't think of one, because there wasn't one. See, it wasn't the sacrifice that started a covenant. It was an oath that started a covenant. And the oath that God gives is sworn... And it's given in Ezekiel, and he swears an oath to Israel at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. So that's when the New new Covenant kicks off. That just gives you a quick overview. Someday I'll come back, and we'll do a drill down on it. But uh, it's, it's very, very interesting. We all learned a lot uh, in that particular study. So the New Covenant. These are the covenants of promise, the Abrahamic Covenant and its derivatives, okay? The... Land covenant, land seed, and blessing aspects of the Abrahamic covenant, the Israel land covenant in Genesis twelve seven and Deuteronomy twenty nine one promised a specific piece of real estate, the land. The Davidic covenant in Second Samuel seven promises an eternal seed and the blessing, as exemplified in Jeremiah thirty one thirty one to thirty three, the blessing. So this is the covenant of promise, and what we learn is that the "...that the Gentiles are uh, excluded, they are strangers from the covenants of promise, they are for Israel, they are for the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but true Israel, which are those who were believers, not just those who are physical descendants, but those who believed in the messianic hope, the messianic promise from the Old Testament." Now, I ran across this passage I thought was remarkable, Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 3 through 8. I want you to see how this passage pulls these together. God is speaking to Jeremiah. Uh, through Jeremiah, and says, but I will gather the remnant of my flock. The remnant always refers to Jews. The church is not a remnant. The believers today are not a, a remnant. The remnant is technical language for believers in Israel as opposed to the rest who are apostate. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them. This is not talking about the return of some Jews In 538 or in 516 or later in the uh, 5th century, uh, there were groups that came back under Zerubbabel, groups that came back under Ezra, groups that came back under Nehemiah, but they all came from Babylon. They didn't come from those who had fled uh, to to Egypt, and there were Jewish communities down in uh, the southern part of Egypt, which is called Upper Egypt. There was a Jew- large Jewish community in Alexandria and other areas. There were Jews that had been scattered from the uh, Assyrian conquests that had established communities in Italy, Spain, in, in uh, Turkey, what we now know as uh, Asia Minor or Turkey. And so there were Jewish communities. that They didn't return to, to, to uh, Israel. It was only primarily those who came from Babylon. And so you had a small group, a small percentage today, according to a recent study I saw on uh, that came out from Israel on, the, on their census, is that 45% of Jews worldwide live in Israel. There has never been anything approaching that, never, since 722. Think about that. Once you had the northern kingdom taken and those people scattered throughout the Assyrian empire, you always had just a small percentage, 20, 25% of all Jews living in the land that God promised. But today, 45% of Jews in the world live in the land God promised. You'll hear people say, you know, God can allow somebody to wipe out Israel today. Maybe they'll come back three or four times. That's hogwash, what that, what is necessary to bring back this, it's taken a hundred years since the Balfour Declaration. But the Balfour Declaration was just a recognition of their right to their national homeland. It really started with the first Aliyah, which started around 1881. And so it has been over a hundred and forty years, and they've gotten to 45 percent. This is remarkable. This is God regathering in unbelief not the regathering in belief. That's what we have here. There's two regatherings, a regathering in unbelief first so that there's a nation there when the tribulation begins. And then there is a second regathering that will occur at the end of the tribulation. That is what this passage is talking about. I will gather the remnant that's believers. This is what's talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 1 through 2. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their folds. You know, this is their homeland. That's just another way of talking about the land. So we have the promise here of the land covenant. They shall be fruitful and increase. That's related to the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. Jeremiah 23, 4, I will set up shepherds over them who will feed them and they shall fear no more nor be dismayed, nor shall they be lacking. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. Who's the righteous branch? That's the Messiah. This is the Davidic covenant. So we have a reference to the land covenant. We have a reference to the the timing of the new covenant. We have a reference to the Davidic covenant here. A king shall reign and prosper. This is the future kingdom in the millennial kingdom. And execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives who brought us up, The children of Israel from the land of Egypt. Isn't that remarkable? All this time, since 1446 B.C., the Jews talk about Yahweh as the one who delivered them from Israel, but in the future, from Egypt rather, but in the future it's going to be as the Lord lives who brought us, brought up and led the descendants of the house of Israel from the north country and from all the countries where I had driven them and they shall dwell in their own land. See the return In 538, and the subsequent returns back in 516 and 480, 470, 445, all through that period, that is what people are talking about now. They brought us back. But this future return will be all the remnant from all the countries, and all the remnant will be in the land, and that will be the reference point is the deliverance that God gives at that point. So, the covenants of promise are these four the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And then the fourth thing that is said in terms of a deficit for the Gentiles is that they have no hope. Literally, it is not having hope. And so they are, not, they do not have hope, they are without hope, and this hope refers to, I believe, a the messianic hope and the future hope, hope of 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 eschatology and let me show you why why i say this so here's the verse it says having no hope now this is te- technical and again we have to go to the old testament to understand it now we live in an era today when we have these false teachers who teach in these mega churches And there's a graduate of Dallas Seminary who should have his degree revoked if they had any courage at that school. And he's the son of a well-known and orthodox and solid Baptist pastor and this pastor's name is Andy Stanley, and he has published works, and he has said, we don't need to know the Old Testament. We as Christians need to divorce ourselves from the Old Testament. All this stuff in the Old Testament just keeps people away from, from Jesus and the gospel and coming to my big mega church. That's really what he's saying. And he's just a heretic and a false teacher. The reality is you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament, and we have to teach the Old Testament. So to understand this concept of hope, you have to go back to what it, how it's used in the Old Testament. First of all, in the Old Testament, hope is specifically attached to Yahweh, to the person of God. In the Psalms, the word is used 27 times, and then there's a couple of other words that are synonyms that are translated hope. Uh, 27 times out of the 43 times that this word Yahiel, or forms of it, are used. Okay, so that's that, that's... Well, over half of the times in the Old Testament. Jeremiah seems to be the one who uses it the most significantly, as we'll see in just a minute. But in the Psalms, it usually refers to a personal hope, personal waiting on God. And in Psalm 119, our hoping is in God's Word. Then the other word that is on the right uh, is mikveh, not to be confused with a homophone that refers to the ritual bath. This is a word that means to wait for something, to hope for it, or to look for it. Okay, that's used a number of times and is usually translated hope as well. Uh, the most significant uses—I don't know why—I was thinking about Ezekiel, but it's Jeremiah. Uh, the most significant uses in Jeremiah: Jeremiah fourteen eight, God's referred to the hope of Israel, the savior in time of trouble. Jeremiah fifty verse seven, the Lord, the hope of the fathers. So it's focused in, in many passages on God as our hope. He's our confidence. That word for hope has to do with a confident expectation. So our confidence is in God. And this is that word, yahil that's used in these passages. Then in these other passages, you have uh, the other word, the word uh, mikvah. Jeremiah 17, 17, Blessed is the man who trusts in Yahweh and whose hope is the Lord. Jeremiah 17:13, O Yahweh, the hope of Israel. So we have the hope of Israel mentioned there. And then that hope is also tied in a second usage to the future fulfillment of God's promises to them. So on the one hand, what I'm showing you is that hope is related to God and their relationship with God. And in the second sense, it has to do with the future fulfillment of God's promises. Jeremiah 29, verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. So that hope is connected to the future fulfillment of the promises and the future for Israel. Third use, hope is connected to the promises in the word of God. Again, it is Jeremiah who uses the word in Lamentations 3. This really should be 321 to 26, okay? Now, I put all these verses up here. This is a great passage, and hope is used three times. And we should memorize this. This I recall to mind, and therefore I have hope. What is the hope based on? It's the word of God, the promises of God that are remembered. So hope here is related to the promises of God and their fulfillment. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Sounds like a good hymn, doesn't it? We ought to sing that. Lamentations 3.24 goes on to say, The Lord is my portion, therefore I hope in him. So our hope is in the promise of God that's backed by the character of God. Lamentations 325, the Lord is good to those who wait for him. That concept of wait is the, is the other word, a form of kavah, which is mikvah, is based on to wait for him. So the Lord is good to those who wait for him. And it's very close to the idea the Lord is good to those who hope in him, to the soul who seeks him. And then verse 26 is translated, it is good that one should hope and wait Quietly, those two words are connected, for the salvation of the Lord. So there is, in this passage, we see it used in terms of the focus on God and focus of the promise of God and its future fulfillment. Fourth, in light of the Old Testament background, hope is used with reference to God, second to the future fulfillment of the promise of God. So which is it in Ephesians 2? 12. Well, the next thing that he's going to say is without God. So it wouldn't be the first part to God because then that would just be a redundancy. So he's using without hope in the second sense, without a hope in a future fulfillment of promises of God. There's no future eschatological confidence for the Gentile people. They have nothing to look forward to is what he is saying here. And so that is that is the meaning of this, this fourth phrase. And then the last phrase is without God in the world. This is the Greek word atheos. Now from that word we get our word atheism. The a at the beginning in, in Greek is like our English prefix un. So it's a negation, no God. But this doesn't mean they're atheists in the world because we know that the Ephesians were not atheists. The Ephesians had many gods. They were uh, polytheists, and they worshipped not only the gods and goddesses that we're familiar with. If you've studied Roman or Greek mythology, they had uh, temples to all of those different gods, uh, probably some Jewish uh, influence because they had a, it had an altar or temple to the uh, almighty God. And then there was the great temple, the greatest temple in the ancient world it was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world and it was the temple to artemis of the ephesians and this was four times larger than the parthenon to athena in in athens and uh, artemis of the ephesian people came from all over uh, to go to that temple and to worship there and when Paul came and preached the gospel and people turned from the gods and goddesses of the, of the Ephesians and turned to the God of the Bible. The silversmiths, if you remember, that were making all these little statues of Diana or Artemis of the Ephesians, they, they revolted. They, they wanted to kick Paul out of town and get rid of them and execute them because they were cut, cutting into their business. They had a, the gospel had a huge economic impact. So these are the five deficits of the Gentiles. And next time we'll start with 13, but this is really, as I said, the transition sentence and the topical sentence for what is coming. But now, now, you had these deficits as Gentiles, as a class of people prior to the church age, but now, in the church age, those in Christ Jesus... Who once were far off, and it's sort of a double entendre. They're far off from who? Contextually, it's far off from the from the Jews, but they're also far off from God. And so we'll see that this how this is used in the Old Testament. The terms far off and brought near, but they're brought near by the blood of Christ, which is a figure of speech for the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross where he paid for our sins. Because of that, neither Jew nor Gentile are going to be far from God. They will both be brought near. We have two barriers that come up in the next section, the barrier between Jew and Gentile and the barrier between Jew and Gentile and God. Okay, so we have to keep that distinct. So we'll begin that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed father we thank you for this opportunity to study these things read through them understand their their significance look at how uh, it brings so much from the old testament to play in each of these individual phrases and father we pray that you would just open our minds to the wonderful uniqueness that we have as gentiles and Jews also, one together in the body of Christ, united in this distinct, wonderful masterpiece that you have created, according to Ephesians 2.10. May we recognize this is our identity. When we have a self-image, our self-image needs to start with the fact that we are first in, the, in your image, and second, we are a masterpiece of creation in the body of Christ. And therefore, there's nothing that we should look or think about negative in our lives because we are blessed more than anyone in all of the world. And this is not a point of pride, but a point of humility that we have been given so much by you. Father, we pray that anyone who's listening, who's never trusted Christ as Savior, that they would understand the gospel, the good news that Christ died to save sinners. He died for us. He paid our penalty, and that by simply trusting him, believing in him, we have eternal life. We become new creatures in Christ. We become spiritually alive and adopted into God's royal family and made part of the body of Christ where we are positionally seated together with him in the heavenlies, because we have been made alive together in him and raised. And, Father, help us to understand and apply all these things. In Christ's name, amen.